Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode, oh my god, 50 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together to share stories and make connections. Whether you like to ride them, fix them, or collect them, whether you're a novice or an expert, if you've ever smiled about a bicycle, you're in the right place. Today, have you ever tried to get past an angry bull with a bicycle? Have you ever tried to do it with a bicycle and a baby? You'll find out about that, how to reclaim used saddles, relive the joy of cycling around the block as a child, and if you remember the adventures of Billy and his bicycle from 1919, we'll be on episode 3. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on mine. Let's roll out. So my big problem with touring is I always overpack and I always forget something that later turns out to be very crucial to my comfort and well-being. It's usually not a big deal though, I'm usually able to pick up what I need on the road, but imagine you were traveling with a child. You'd have to have a special clarity of mind in terms of planning to be able to pull that off. But that's just what our next guest did. So in 1983, I decided to take a cross-country bicycle trip from Washington State to Pennsylvania. And joining me was my wife, Bertie, and our 15-month-old son, Stephen. Now, I know a lot of people, well, I won't say a lot, but a certain amount of people that bicycle long distances, love to bike coast-to-coast in the U.S. Not too many people do with a 15-month-old baby. So at that point in time, when we started a trip with our son, he was 18 months old when we finished. So he had spent 20% of his life on a bicycle trip. Hi, my name is John Gronsky. I live in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And back in 1983, I took a cross-country bicycle trip with my wife and our 15-month-old son. I was in my 20s at the time. You know, that was over 35 years ago. And since then, I've been an avid cyclist. I love to get out there. Uh, right now, I have a gravel bike that I ride. And uh, would love to tell you a little bit about that cycling adventure that we took back in 1983. So whose idea was this trip? Well, it was kind of my idea. You know, when I was 20 years old, it was 1976, and I heard all these stories about people bicycling across the United States. and. I really had the sense of adventure where I wanted to experience that. So in 1983, after I had spent four years in the Army and uh, left active duty at Fort Lewis, Washington, and uh, Barry and I had lived in Tacoma, Washington for six months after that, and I started to talk to my wife about bicycling across the United States. And believe it or not, my wife said she would do the trip with me. Even more surprisingly, She agreed that we would do this trip with our 15-month-old son, Stephen. 
And so we started to prepare. Uh, you know, we were both working at the time, but with the little bit of spare time we had, we would go out on our bicycles and, and do some running and just do everything we could to build ourselves up physically for the trip. Ended up buying a bicycle trailer for my son Stephen to ride in, and we did some test rides with the trailer behind our bikes, and that all worked out well. And then it was at the end of May 1983, after we had sold both of our cars, had our furniture shipped from the apartment we were living in to the new place we are going to live in, in northeastern Pennsylvania. Barity and I started off on our bicycles with my sons in tow from Tacoma, Washington, and venturing across the United States and northeastern PA, but which took a very circuitous route. We decided to, uh, after leaving Washington State, we cycled all the way down to Pueblo, Colorado, before turning east across Kansas and eventually making our way up into northeastern Pennsylvania. Did you at all mention this while she was still pregnant? You know, we had talked about, we, we got, we were still relatively newlyweds at the time we made this trip. We had been married about three years. And really, I started to talk to Bertie about my dream of cycling across the United States even before we were married. So, you know, I had floated this idea past her, you know, a, a few years earlier, but it wasn't until I left the Army and we happened to be living in Washington State and I thought, man, this is just a, a great time to do this trip because hey, we're living on the West Coast. We're going to be relocating to the East Coast. And we had some time in between transitioning from our jobs in Washington to the jobs we were going to be pursuing in Pennsylvania. So we thought, hey, the, the geography is working for us. The timing is working for us. If we were going to do this trip, now's the time to do it. And uh, I just think that everything kind of lined up for us to do the trip at that exact point in time, and we just weren't going to let having a young child stop us. I mean, we did everything with Stephen up to that point. I used to cross-country ski with Stephen on my back when we lived up in Washington and did a lot of camping and other outdoor activities with us, and we just felt that Stephen was such a part of our life, a joyous part of our life, that he was just going to be part of this bike trip, and it just worked out fantastic for us. It was a joy doing this trip as a family. So if we go back in time and look at the historical perspective of this, there was a bicycle boom in the 1970s. And in some years, more bicycles than cars were sold. And people were in love with these 10-speed looking bikes. And all of a sudden, people would have one in their garage. And some people would actually ride them. And some people would just kind of get one. And it would be like a fad. But the infrastructure was very different back then. There wasn't as many bicycle paths and greenways and awareness of bicycles on the road in America as there is now. Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, back in 76, uh, obviously the Bicentennial, and there was an organization called Bike Centennial. And Bike Centennial developed a route across the United States. I believe it started in Oregon and went to Virginia. There were many people who actually did the cross-country uh, bicycle ride across the United States in 76 in honor of the Bicentennial, especially since Bike Centennial was, was involved here and really tried to publicize it. They put out a series of maps. And I think as I heard stories about these people in 76 
going on this adventure, as I mentioned earlier, that, that really got me excited about it. So the route we took, half of it was on that bike centennial route. I did purchase some of the bike centennial maps before we started the trip. And then the other half of the trip is just routes that we decided to ride on our own. But you're right. There were not many bike trails. As a matter of fact, in the over 4,000 miles that we cycled across the United States back in 1983, the only time we were on uh, an official bike trail is when we biked through the city of Denver. At, at that time, Denver did have a pretty extensive series of bike trails going through their city. But other than that, we were sharing the road with, with automobiles and trucks and, you know, every type of vehicle. But we did our best to try to stay on, on back roads and, and off the beaten path, if you will. So the mic cuts out just a little bit here, but being part of the really tail end of the first big bike boom in the country, how confident was he that people knew that that was a child trailer on the back? Yeah, I, I don't think too many people realized, you know, if they were driving in a car and saw us cycling down the road, you know, me with pulling this big orange cycling trailer behind me. And by the way, cycling trailers for Young children to ride in back in 1983 are nothing like they are today. But I, I doubt that too many people in the in the cars really knew there was a, a young toddler riding in the back of the, the spike trailer. So, uh, you know, we just experienced the normal type of courtesy and dealing with traffic as you would probably deal with today. In Oregon, we hit some some logging trucks speeding by us, but thank God the shoulder was pretty pretty wide on on that. Uh, part of the road in, in Oregon. And then, you know, just the normal issues that any cyclist who bikes on the road deals with with cars. I remember Fourth of July weekend cycling through Colorado, and uh, the traffic was very, very heavy at that point in time. And, and we really just found a, uh, a friend to stay with, and that's a story in itself, uh, where we spent the Fourth of July weekend with this uh, person and his wife and his children in, in Longmont, Colorado, who we had not known before that. We were 600 miles earlier. We were camping at a campground in Idaho, and a couple on a motorcycle came over to our campsite, started to talk to us, you know, very nice people. And the lady who was riding motorcycle with, with the gentleman gave me, uh, on a little piece of paper, the address of her son who lived in Longmont, Colorado. And I thought to myself, man, chances of me actually bumping into this guy when I get to Logmont, Colorado, which is about 600 miles from here, you know, very slight chance. So I just stuck it in my bike bag. And sure enough, uh, 4th of July weekend, this traffic is heavy. We find ourselves in Logmont, Colorado, believe it or not. I dig this uh, piece of paper out of my bike bag, and I call this guy on the phone. And he um, picks up the phone. I explain to him who I am. And he, and he was all excited. He said, yes, my parents told me you might be calling. He goes, where are you? And I, I told him the intersection we were at. He goes, you are literally three blocks from my house. He said, I'm going to drive my car over, and you can follow me back back to the house on your bikes. And we spent the 4th of July weekend with him. But that's just uh, part of the serendipity that occurs when you're on a cross-country bicycle trip like this and, and how people were so friendly opening up their hearts, opening up their homes to us. Was there any other time where you thought to yourself, like you had a close call and you were like, with our kid, maybe we should stop? 
I will tell you, we had one close call in particular I'll tell you about, but we never felt like we were going to stop. Uh, we never felt like we weren't, were not going to complete our journey. That never crossed our mind. But in, in Oregon, we're on this rural road. We had just crossed over uh, the Ochoco Divide in the Cascades, which was uh, over 4,000 feet. Came down the seven-mile descent into a valley. It was a rainy day. As a matter of fact, we actually hit snow on top of the divide as we were crossing the Cascades. Came down the seven-mile descent into a valley, and the rain had just stopped. And as we hadn't seen a car on this rural road probably in about 45 minutes, and as we're about ready to come to the bottom of the descent, this pickup truck is coming up the hill, and he starts waving his hand trying to flag us down. And I keep on going, and I stop on the level ground. My wife stops to talk to this guy in the truck. She comes down alongside of me after a few minutes, and so what did that guy want? She goes, he said something strange. He said, there's a puddle in the middle of the road ahead. We should bike fast. And we're trying to figure out, what what was he talking about? And then as we're munching on some peanuts and raisins, we're looking down the road ahead of us. We finally realized what he had said. He said, there is a bull in the middle of the road. Bull, B-U-L-L, in the middle of the road. And we see this bull walking toward us. Apparently, he had just, you know, gotten loose. And uh, he stopped. He started to paw at the ground, and he blew smoke out of his nose. And I thought that only happened on cartoons. But my wife grew up on a farm, so she realized how dangerous the situation was. And we were trying to devise a plan of escape. And just we were thinking, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get away from this bull? This blue Dodge comes down the hill, stops, farmer, it looked like a farmer driving a car. He rolls down his window, and he, uh, he said, listen, this is what we're going to do. He goes, I'm going to keep my car between your bikes and the bull. He goes, you ride to the left of my car. I'm going to keep the bull to the right of my car. He goes, we're going to bike past this bull, you know, about 10 miles an hour. And he goes, we're not going to stop till we get about another quarter of a mile or so down the road. And so we immediately executed that plan because we were running out of time because this bull was getting closer and closer. And did exactly what he said finally came to a stop, and I wanted to pull that man out of the car and give him a big hug because I really believed he, he saved our life. And my, my own thoughts on that, after not seeing cars for so long on that rural road and then, you know, the pickup truck comes and then the Stodge shows up at just the right time, I really think divine intervention had a play here. And I don't I, – I shudder to think what would have happened if, if, if that man in that car did not show up at that time. But who thinks they're going to run into a bull in the middle of a of a rural road on a, on a bike trip like that? But that happened to us. That was probably the closest call we had. So, so a lot of people ask me, you know, how did you pack to actually bike – we're three months with a, a toddler, uh, you know, still in diapers. And uh, we tried to shave a lot of weight off of our own stuff that we were going to need in order to bring enough stuff to allow our young son, Stephen, to have a, a comfortable ride along the way. I will tell you this, though, something you probably don't know and maybe you could use this on Jeopardy someday, but a box of 48 disposable diapers weighs eight pounds. I know because I weighed them. And, you know, when you're cycling cross-country like that, you're very conscious of the weight. You know, we started out with a box of 48 uh, disposable diapers, but then along the way, we would usually replenish that stock. Stephen just had your, your basic, you know, maybe two pair of sweatpants, a couple of sweatshirts, you know, had to keep the clothes to a minimum. 
Of course, there was baby bottles. There was uh, powdered milk most of the time because it's too hard to try to have fresh milk, you know, traveling with fresh milk, especially in the heat of southern Colorado and, and Kansas. So, you know, you just try to do what you could. When you're on a bike trip, though, you're never that far from civilization. I mean, you know, it's not like you're backpacking in the Rockies or something. So there's little grocery stores available, little campground stores, you know, a restaurant here and there. So you just try to make do with what you could. We did have a one-burner camping stove, so usually in the morning – I would make some oatmeal on the camping stove, usually in the evening. I would make some soup on the camping stove, you know, just some basic stuff that we could make easily, move her camping, you know, made our way that way. But that, that's the way you pack when you're traveling with a child that age. You, you try to save weight on necessities that you need as an adult and dedicate the essentials to what your, your young son is going to need. With so many people doing tours in your head, do you think just a little bit when somebody talks about a tour that you've done, do you go like, try doing that with a kid, like inside your head a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Uh, but, you know, anybody who does a, a long distance tour, they're, they're a special person. I have the, the greatest respect for them, um, for, for the challenge that they take on. But, yeah, sometimes I think, yeah. You know, try doing it with a, with a with a baby. It'd be a little bit harder, but uh, yeah, it's hard not to think that way. <laughs> All right. So if people want to find out more about your journey, find out the rest of the story, I mean, you know, all kinds of questions come up in my head about your son and what his feelings on it are all these years later and stuff. Where would they go? Yeah. You know, I recently wrote a book about this trip. You know, I, I kept a journal while we were conducting this trip over 35 years ago. That journal sat in a shoebox for over 35 years. And Sitting around a, uh, a fire pit with my son, Stephen, who was the baby who did the trip with us, and my other son, Timothy, who wasn't even born at that time. And they were asking me stories about the bicycle trip. And after I conveyed a few stories, I said, hey, Dad, you should really write a book about this. So that's what inspired me to write the book. And the name of the book is The Ride of Our Lives, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love. And just as the subtitle of the book implies, I, there are many lessons we learned about, you know, life lessons, leadership lessons, lessons on love. I ended up spending 41 years in, in the Army. After all, a lot of the lessons we actually learned on the bicycle trip are lessons that I've applied throughout my life. So if anybody wants that book, Ride of Our Lives, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love, go to Amazon.com, go to BarnesandNoble.com. I also have a website johngronsky.com. So uh, many ways to find out about the book. And I, I, I hope people have the opportunity to check the book out. And I think they, the reviews I've been getting on it are, are fantastic. I think people really enjoy hearing about the story that occurred back in the analog days before the internet and, and Google and GPS and all those things that we enjoy today. So uh, really cool book. And I, I hope people have the opportunity to at least check it out. I'm very active on social media, on Instagram. I'm uh, John Gronsky Leads on Twitter. I'm at JL Gronsky on LinkedIn. You can find me under John Gronsky on Facebook. You can find me under John Gronsky. So uh, active on all those uh, social media platforms. And I would love for people to follow me. I'll follow you back and just have uh, an exchange on social media. That would be awesome. So, John, thank you very much for sharing your story. 
No, this is this is this is great. I really want to tell you that I enjoy your your podcast. There's always something interesting, and I was just listening to the story about the, the magpies in Australia. That, thanks for everything you do to get these stories of cycling out there to everybody. Well, thank you. So as a person being so deeply into biking, I get people walking up to me all the time saying things like, hey, is your wife into biking too? And they kind of nod their heads and I firmly start shaking my head back and forth and say, no, she's not. And for a while, I kind of thought, well, what if she was into biking as much as I am? And that works for some people, but honestly, I'm really appreciative that she is not into my hobbies. And she's extremely supportive of my hobbies from kind of outside of the hobby. But when people are asking me that, they often go, oh, that's too bad. Like, I can see a little look in their eyes like they're thinking that's too bad, and it's really not. She knows a lot and she likes to surprise me with all the little factoids she's picked up. Periodically she'll identify a bike or a part or somebody doing something on a bicycle and she'll show off her knowledge. She's extremely smart, even with stuff that's not in her wheelhouse. And I think that's why I'm kinda okay with it. I think it's good that we have our separate hobbies. Gives us a chance to go off and then bring something positive back into the relationship. I've gotten sourdough bread, an ongoing relationship with chickens that I probably wouldn't have started on my own. And since we have a lot of stuff that we do in common anyway, like hiking and traveling and going on adventures with each other, and we just enjoy each other's company, it's kind of okay that our hobbies are kind of like a Venn diagram of marital balance. If she was into bikes as much as I'm into bikes, I bet she'd be able to uncover some of the things I've not been so successful at with bicycles. There was a time I bought a whole bunch of this one size of tire at a swap meet because I had been using a lot of them and then I didn't really use a lot after that, but I have a lot now. There are some parts in my parts straws that I literally have more than bicycle shops. I, I'm not even sure how I got them all. And when I get into building a project bike sometimes, I might use some more premium parts than I probably should that would kind of take away from any profit I might possibly make on the bike. So having somebody as smart and perceptive as my wife within that world of mine would probably make it a very different dynamic for me. Another difference between us is that I can remember just about everything in my life and she remembers very, very, very little of her childhood. So when a picture posted on her birthday reminded her of her early love of bicycling, I was pretty curious as to what that memory was. So here's my wife with an only recently remembered bicycle story. So in a supreme irony of the world in 2020, on my wife's birthday, she has a memory come to her about bicycles. So I remember none of my childhood. 
not for any significant trauma issues, but just I'm not one of those people that holds on to memories. Okay, so I knew I had to tell you this when it popped up. So my mom posted a picture of me when I was probably in, well, she says it was first grade, but the trigger was probably that I was in my St. Augustine's Catholic school girl uniform and around this age time. So I saw the picture on Facebook of myself and my mom's nice birthday message. And then I thought, I vividly saw myself riding my bike of the time up around the block a million times. So I've shown you where I lived at that time. I, we lived in the south end of Hartford on Barker Street. Which one was this? When my parents got divorced and my mom had that apartment on Barker so like Street. So like the hilly part. On the hilly part of Barker Street, like behind St. Augustine's Church, okay. down there. So it's hilly. It's hilly, right. And hilly this is... suburbs, kind of busy traffic, people cutting through all the time. I'm on the sidewalk. I'm okay. on the sidewalk. It, it's got to be 1981 or 2. There was a library on the corner. It's still there. Canfield Library. And I vividly remember riding this blue, sparkly metallic paint white seat with had training wheels on it, which maybe means I didn't know how to ride a bike very well because it, it had to have been second or third grade it, well, around that area. And I'm looping the block, like Barker Street, Campfield, Adelaide, Stedman, around and around. But I would go up the hill and then down Campfield and then down the hill. And I can, I vividly remember not being able to bike all the way up the hill. And then <laughs> being able to bike the whole hill. And that being like, you know, a feat of strength, like to bike up the hill all the way to the library and then go around the corner and go fast, 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 as fast as you can and like break with your coaster brakes on the sidewalk, you know, with all the bumps and the dig 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 and then go around the corner. And that was it. That was the memory burst. I remember where I locked my bike up at the apartment building. I remember the bike. And I, when I talked to my mom today for my birthday, I was like, I had this memory and everyone was like, ooh, ah, because I never have any childhood memories. So that, that's the important point. The important here point is here is that I have no- For people in the rest of the world. Tom can remember every toothbrush. Tom can remember every toothbrush he's ever had in his entire life. Yep. And I can't remember anything really before I was probably 16 or 15 or 16. It, I can remember some things. You blocked a lot of it out. And then occasionally <laughs> something will be like, oh, childhood memory. So, so a memory of you enjoying yeah, cycling. Right. A lot. A lot. And really digging that whole going around the same course over and over and Fast. over again. Fast. And getting all the way up the hill. The success of like, you couldn't get up the hill the whole way, and now you can. Going around and around the block a million times. Yeah. So that was it. And my mo mom clarified it was a Ross bicycle. Because I said, I even Ross. think it, it was a Ross bicycle. Ross made in the USA, Pennsylvania. <laughs> 
And she said, because we, and my parents were broke at that time. <clears throat> and she said that was a really expensive bicycle, you know. Um, they were a quality bike. That they were, you know, that she had gotten for me. So that was my birthday memory. And I think that the day, because our birthdays are only a day apart, it's a gift, a semi little token gift for you that I share this bike memory with you. Thanks. You're welcome. So we can share that now. Yes. Like when I was a kid, I used to go around and around and around and around the driveway over and over and over mm -hmm. again. And it was so entrancing. Yeah, your, it was, your folks' driveway was long. Yeah. It was long. And just going around it was like going around a pump track. Mm -hmm. And to me, for some reason, that was extremely satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we send our kids with a cell phone into the other room and well, they make noise. But when they send us out with a bicycle and we just did laps over and over, and over and over again. So this is something that we haven't been able to relate to each other and now we can. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a birthday present. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now that we're sharing this feeling together, does it open up a part of you that at all wants to ride around with me? No. Not at all. Sorry. Okay. Well, here we are at the mid-roll thank yous for the 50th episode. Thank God, 50 episodes, huh? 70,000 downloads around the world in over 90 countries. That's amazing, and I am truly grateful. Thank you very much. So thank you for being patient is another one of the mid-roll thank yous this time. The start of the school year this year was weird to say the least. So that's my day job, as you know, as a teacher. So I do appreciate your patience, and especially if you have a story waiting in the queue, I appreciate you waiting for me to get to yours. I think about almost every unfinished segment I have daily, so I appreciate your patience. If you'd like to help the show, there's a couple things you could do. One is to just leave a positive review anywhere where you listen. Hit the like button, hit the share button, ask me for some free stickers and make them seen around the world. Or you can go to patreon.com and search up Bike Karma and for as little as a dollar a month, that's 12 bucks a year, you could be a Bike Karma insider. That basically just means you support the show. There is some additional content posted there and it helps me to afford my yacht. No, it doesn't. It just helps me to get closer to my goal of breaking even and still being able to hand out free stickers to anybody around the world who wants them. And speaking of supporting the show and enabling me to do that, I'd like to thank Fred Thomas from the Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes. Fred's just a hell of a nice guy, and if you haven't checked him out so far, please go to his websites and social media and check out his content. He has a show of his own that he started called All Things Bike with Fred Thomas, and it started on Community Access and it's gone full online. He really is just a great ambassador and supporter of the cycling world. 
So you know through the frame and wheel he helps you sell any of your unwanted bicycles, parts, and accessories. He lists them for you, he does professional level photography, and he deals with sometimes the weird situations that occur when you're trying to sell stuff online, especially if you have a lot of bike stuff to sell. As the hours get darker, you don't want to be meeting in some sketchy parking lot. Let Fred do it. Fred's going to take selling your stuff and bring it into the light. Literally, the dude's like a wedding photographer for your bicycle stuff. Go take a look at some of the pictures he's done. He'll evaluate it, list it, post it, photograph it, do all the research on it, and he'll deal with the whole back end of it as well, dealing with the people who buy it. He'll pack it, ship it, deal with all that stuff too. So when he says time, space, and cash, he really can help you with all three. So you can help him to help us just by following him on any of the social media. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, The Frame and Wheel, Time, Space, and Cash. Fred can really help you with all three. Now back to the show. So whatever reason, novice bike buyers tend to look really closely at the saddle. They might call it a seat. I mean, I even call it a seat sometimes, but it's the saddle. And the saddle of a bicycle could be a very expensive, comfortable saddle. And if it has a small, tiny, superficial rip in the material making up the saddle, they see that as a huge detriment to the functionality of the saddle. I've seen, you know, we call them civilians at swap meets. These are the people who aren't dealers, who might be there to buy their only bicycle, or, you know, they're definitely people who have less than 10 bikes. And they'll be bargaining and think they're getting a good deal because they're getting the person to take a $100 saddle off that might have a slight cosmetic imperfection on it and put a cheap saddle on. So cosmetically it looks better, but it's way inferior and they think they're getting a deal. So if you try to sell some bikes, you know that you're going to have to have a little stockpile of cosmetically pretty nice looking saddles to put on those bikes because you know people are going to kick you on the price on that. But once you've been around the block a few times, you really get to love your saddle or hate it and then get one that you do love. That saddle is one of the major points of contact between you and your bicycle. It can be the focus of scoring and misery or it can be your best friend. People will say things to you like, you rode 100 miles and your butt doesn't hurt, and you'll say, yes, thanks to my saddle. And then if you have tendencies similar to mine, you probably end up getting a little stockpile of your favorite model of saddle. You know, just in case. Well, having redone several hundred bikes and having had to replace the saddles on many of them because some of them I was going to sell and didn't want to get kicked on the price just because of a little tiny tear, I have accumulated a few dozen saddles that have superficial issues but are for the most part fairly functional. I guess my intention is to someday go back and look and see if I could recover them in some way. 
to learn some of the skills of upholstery. Somehow to up my skills with vinyl and staples and figure out some way to give these saddles another life. Well, on Instagram, a while ago, I was looking and saw somebody who was doing exactly that. But not only that, they were also making the saddles look better than they had originally by putting amazing designs in, putting shapes under and in the material, and basically just recycling saddles with a level of artistry that I've never seen applied to used saddles before. Well, I get a chance to talk to Shepard P. Myers and learned about his craft, but he also taught me a lot about all the old school saddles that were really, really good upgrades on bicycles. I had seen all the names that he had talked about before, but after we spoke, I started looking at the saddles that I had really more closely. I mean, we all know Brooks saddles as the leather saddles that you have to break in, but there is a whole other world of saddles from the 80s and 90s. Many were made in Italy, and they are just fabulous quality. Nowadays, most of the road bike manufacturers end up having an in-house brand of saddles that they put onto every single bike, kind of like their in-house tires. And unfortunately, for many people, those tires are the first thing that you upgrade on a new road bike, and the saddle is probably the second. But imagine a time where you could buy a Ford and instead of getting the factory seats that come from Ford, you could get, say, like Coach or Gucci or Louis Vuitton, not just for fashion, but for functionality. Well, there was a time where you could do that with bicycle saddles. And surprisingly, they're serviceable and they could last a long time. So before you chuck that old saddle away for a new one, listen to this segment about recycling, upcycling, and revitalizing old saddles. Myers. I, uh, I run a sort of a fun little Instagram post called Recycle Bicycle Seats, which is really about the discovery and exploration of how to refabricate or rebuild seats that I actually want to ride. I'm currently in the Southern Berkshires and near Salisbury, and I'm happy to be on the Bike Karma podcast. What do I think of when I see bicycle parts that could be reused? Well, oftentimes I think it's by the nature of some of the obsolescence in it that in how much production value goes into those that I think they should be given a second life. So particularly something with carbon rails, because that's so energy intensive, that I think, man, that should be reused. So how can I get another round out of it? What would be some of the little things why people throw their seats away or get new saddles? I think I'm sure a lot of people remember the flight, the Regal, the original San Marcos, and the late 90s, mid 90s Saddle Italias. The nose would actually wear off. So the seat would be fine, but the friction of where the shorts would rub against the nose would wear through. And oftentimes the foam or the EVA would be fine underneath. So I certainly had seats that I wore through. And then I also noticed that as they got thinner and narrower, they wore through faster. So the life cycle of the seat was quicker and also just the cost. I mean, it felt well, like they'd totally get a second life, so why not try and figure out how to do it? One of the first things that people look at when they look at a bicycle is, believe it or not, the saddle. You could have a beautiful bike, and if it's got a rip on the saddle or a slight tear in the saddle, people will totally 
magnify that over the whole rest of the bike. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's one of the things is that the blend between the mechanics of the bicycle and the three interfacing points and the ergonomics of it. And, you know, the brake levers really, in addition to the seat and the bicycle shoe, really do define how you respond to that bicycle in addition to how you're fit to those things. So, you know, the mechanics of the drivetrain to the, the dual control levers, how you sit on the seat, and just the aesthetics of the drop. I mean, do you have a slam your stem with five to six inches of drop if you're a true racer? Are you upright with a comfort bike, like a, a wood chipper on a gravel bike, or, you know, one of those all-purpose, all-encompassing bicycles that the drop bars are as high as the seat? So I think it's what people relate to is because how they fit to the bike. We then talked about how the history of bicycle makers went from getting parts from third-party sources to trying to make more of their own in-house parts. The thing that happened was the OEM market really took off. So companies like Bontrager really took over Trex things. So you wouldn't find aftermarket seats on the bikes. You would, you say for specialized, they really pushed the toupee line. So I think things like Saddle Italia and San Marco really kind of became secondary. You could draw parallels to the fork side of the bike industry when Cannondale started using an in-house carbon fiber fork from Taiwan and stopped using time forks, and then instantly the rest of the bike industry followed suit. So when I'm fixing bikes, I fix a lot of, you know, bottom scraper bikes, bikes that are just discarded. Uh, for charity, for donations, just to give kids riders and stuff like that. And I'm always taking off a seat and putting a better seat on just because when I give it to even like a high school kid, if the seat doesn't look clean, if it doesn't look sharp, then they think that that's the way the whole bike is. So I've got this whole pile of seats that just have little cosmetic problems with them. And so basically I feel like even the lower uh, the lower end seats are still perfectly functional, but they're not uh, cosmetically attractive. So when I saw your Instagram feed and I saw what you were doing with seats, I was extremely interested and motivated to try and start to do that at some level just to bring some of these uh, lower end seats back into use because they just seemed like, you know, it was only a uh, cosmetic damage. Um, what, do you, what is the process that you go through? So I actually started with a SLR, Saddle Italia, with carbon rails, and it has remained one of the easiest seats I've ever done, and I've rarely had one go that smoothly. So this strange twist of fate with that. Generally, seats with foam, like a beach cruiser, or the really bottom big puffy seats, or that are more than two inches to an inch and a half thick, those are almost impossible to recover with a good piece of leather because the leather binds in the back end, and the foam fights the stretch of the leather because it just doesn't have a real solid shape. The mid-price point are the OEM seats. They're easier to recover, so you can just take a piece of leather and stretch it over. They generally respond. Uh, for most people, unless it's, it's sort of the, the actual the physique, the San Marco, uh, Prologo, or Saddle Italia, those, those higher-end brands, I think it's sort of, unless you want to do it, it's kind of a waste of time. So, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the, the back end, it's really how thick they are and, how, and the quality of the undercarriage. And the other thing, too, is 
since Velo, that I think the Chinese or Taiwanese makes the majority of all seats, I think it's just Physique slash Brooks, that's one brand, and then the best of my knowledge, and then Saddletelli and San Marco are really one thing. And so there's really only two two or three companies that do the seats. So if you look up, so WTB is Velo, specialized as Velo. Montrager is Velo, as far as I know. They just contract out. So you you generally don't see, you, they're kind of all the same, frankly, most of the OEM things. I don't know about Liv or in slash Giant, who makes those things. Am I answering the question? or? Yeah, so how about the thickness of the leather that you use to go over them? It just depends, whatever I can find at Goodwill. I mean, okay. I would, uh, yeah, I go to Goodwill and dig through the coats. I've gotten to the point where you can generally have a good sense. You look on the back for the most panels. So cheaper coats have more panels because it's made from the, the scrap. So, because even if you buy leather, if you actually buy leather, it's really expensive. And I think it was trying to keep with, there's so much crap at Goodwill. I mean, you would really think that we would never need to manufacture anything ever again when you go to thrift stores. There's so much, forgive me, shit. I mean, you either should go to the landfill. It's just astounding. So I'm in line with the ethos. Like, it is all actually repurposed material. Sometimes where I used to live in Honolulu, you used to find leather couches out on the street all the time. And we would just you'd take a knife and cut out the back panel. You have a ton, huge piece of leather because people just leave that stuff out on the street. Yeah, regardless of how you feel about leather, being repurposed and reused is a lot better than going into a landfill. Like with many things, I mean, it, I really understand people's, you know, emotional relationship to a, to an animal and it, that it's a sentient thing and you don't want to harm it. But, you know, there's a real, always a give and a take between microfiber is ostensibly plastic and a, or, you know, polycarbonate. That stuff doesn't break down. There's a, the Pacific plastic gyre, you know, is the size of Texas. There's more plastic than plankton. So leather inherently breaks down. People have harvested leather for eons, as old as, as old as bipedals have been upright, they've been harvesting leather. And you know, really, there's a, there's a great story from 1978 of uh, an explorer who, t who took a leather boat from, I think it's northern England all the way across to Iceland into Greenland to prove that some monks went across the North Atlantic, I think several hundred years before Columbus did. And so leather, leather has this inherent, like, wool uh, superiority to to synthetics. Certainly things like aramid fibers or Kevlar or Glortex or Windstopper can do things that no natural fiber can do. But in terms of the ability to repurpose or reuse like hemp or cotton or leather, it's still lanolin, wool, it's still superior. So what really caught my eye was some of the underlay work he does. It's really artistic and really beautiful. But just a warning, this next part has a little bit of distortion that somehow crept in. It'll work itself out in a moment, so hang on. You're also an artist when it comes to doing this. You're not just recovering the seats with reclaimed leather. You're, you're also putting some personal touches on it, so you're putting these underlayments underneath, which give a unique pattern on top of the seat as well. Could you tell me about that? So I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm actually an entomologist by trade and focused on scientific illustration. So I did this strictly for fun. You know, a lot of it was just, like I said, trying to start out and salvage some expensive bike seats. So for me, it's just kind of, there's two people that do it far better than I would. And so if people really want a boutique seat, I would recommend those two. 
so yeah a lot of it's just for fun it's just something to do you know it, it's to learn and to really learn about the materials it's just a blend of all things and really just recovering the seat's a little boring but once you add in the leather the embossments or punch holes or it becomes kind of a process and you're learning about the materials instead of just doing kind of a trade so it sort of escapes that repetitive trade nature that just you know repurposing seats would have tell me about some of the patterns you've used sometime well it, just whatever comes to the mood or if there's something topical like Berkshire Bike and Board in Great Barrington's incredibly supportive stuff on the owner uh, lets me dig in the bin and re finish recover and then I just return the seats to him so he can you know pass them along to anybody who wants so it's just kind of keeping the variation or keeping it interesting so I did two Berkshire Bike and Board logos sometimes people have things they want sometimes I can't even remember what I've done uh, oh somebody in Hawaii wanted a Kalo leaf, which is what they make taro from. So I did that, and then did life of me. I can't remember offhand what else I've done. There's just so many. It's getting kind of hazy. Well, you certainly inspired me. I'm a little bit of a hoarder of bicycle parts because I, whenever I pick them up, I think of this could be easily reused. This could be easily, if I take the time, this could be easily repurposed and revitalized and brought back to life. So when I when I saw your page, I was very much inspired to put that higher up on my list of things to do is to get these seats back in circulation, whether I use leather or I'm using some synthetic scraps that I have, but just getting them out there and being able to repair that seat, that saddle, so it's going to work. Not at the level that you're doing it, but just at a level where you can keep those things going. Well, I, I think you can certainly, I mean, in the future, we'll hopefully we'll meet up in person and I can show you the ropes and the process so you can salvage them. And I think the important thing is really being able to assess, is it worth saving? You know, especially coming from a collections background on the insect side of things, knowing what to keep is and what to get rid of is just as important as you know, just keeping everything. So you know, yep. have, I think that Marty Kondo did that that recent Netflix series and sort of following her with a little bit of curiosity. Do you know who that is? Oh my God, I've been watching her too. She's been so inspiring. I love her phrase where she's like, you know, say goodbye to things and thank you. And that's how you get rid of them. And I'm like, that makes it so much more helpful to throw away sentimental things, just to say thank you and goodbye when you're doing it. Yeah. So I think there's a lot, and obviously that her her thing has really resonated with Americans have too much stuff. We're we're a culture of consumption, and you know that's I think that's really just who and what we are as Americans is you know more and more. So ultimately, um, it's about assessing what you can use and, and salvage. I mean, is an old Dior thumb shifter worth keeping? Yeah, absolutely. You know, is some kind of crummy seven-speed trigger shifter worth keeping? Maybe not. I don't. You know. I think it's case by case. Our vintage campy parts obviously worth keeping just because it's cool and amazing. Or, you know, is a seven speed hub worth keeping? I don't know. Um, you know, the Well, I would say, I would say yes. So <laughs> I, I kind of, I <laughs> if you go through 300, if you go through 300 or so bikes that you've revitalized without having to break the bank on them, you use all of those parts. But yeah, some things just get so bad that they need to get chucked. 
Well, I think it depends on how close you are to a, say, kind of a, I hate this, the term low income or need based or however, whatever is politically correct. I don't, I don't know. But there was, in Kalihi, there was a bike co op where kids who had really troubled backgrounds could go and assemble a bike from scrap parts. So keeping it all, because, you know, by the nature of how resourceful and useful it is, and if you compare it to, say, you know, sub Saharan Africa where people are, make bikes out of whatever they can find. You just marvel if they can actually pedal that thing. So in that comparison, yeah, I can see it all having value. I sort of forget where we're going with this. What was the, forgive me, the question? Or yeah. the, the arc of that? What to keep? Well, to keep? Just, I, I think that it's, it's refreshing to see you. You're working on the higher end than I work on, but I think it's refreshing to see the reusing of seats and just the cosmetic damage that gets them rejected from use on a build, not being a game ender for those materials. That's what I took away from your Instagram feed is that you're doing it at a higher level, but I could also try my hand at doing it at a lower, lower level. Absolutely, and I, I think the important thing would be to sort of show you what, what is salvageable and what isn't. You know, when you go through, let's say you have 500 seats in a bin or 100 or whatever your number is, N plus one, probably you're just having to decide what is actually salvageable. There's a good chunk yeah. of them you really just gonna, it's like beating your head against the wall. The cheaper the seats, the harder they are. Yep. So the, the thinner, more wafer, more racy, they, they can be done in less than two hours like a satellite Italia SLR, those are the easiest to work on. And like a beach cruiser seat, it's just a nightmare because it fights and binds and twists and the foam has a mind of its own. It's, I think it's really foam. It's like puffy foam like you would find in the sofa on the really cheap ones. And then you have sort of a higher density foam and the intermediate OEM unbranded ones or less expensive. And then you get into high density EVA on the more expensive ones. And that's the they're generally the same whether they have carbon rails or a tire or like a magnesium rail. Once you hit a certain price point, the the foam itself is kind of the same between the different models. Okay. So if people want to go check out what you're doing with saddles and bringing them back to life, where would they go? I just I think it's recycled bicycle seat is the Instagram handle. So it's really just for fun. And again there's there's two prominent people who do it so if they really want the next level and they want it a custom seat with exotic leathers or, you know, beautifully perforated patterns. That, that there's there's people who are doing it who I would recommend who, who can, I think, deliver in that way. That so, Yeah, for me, it's just for fun. It's sort of an experimentation process. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for the interview. Come back with me to a time long ago, in the golden age of American-made bicycles. Though they never really made their own complete bikes, New Departure from Bristol, Connecticut made a rear-wheel hub with a built-in coaster brake. These hubs were deluxe upgrades on many brands of the day. Many are still rideable and serviceable today over a hundred years later. Way back in 1919, before the internet, television, and even commercial radio, New Departure was marketing their superior bicycle hubs via the adventures of Billy Banning. Here at Bike Karma, I found a copy of this promotional book and will bring you a chapter each episode until the saga is complete. So come back with me to 1919, when Billy Banning's life was forever changed by a bike with a very special rear wheel. Travel back through time to experience 
Billy's Bicycle Triumphs. We did. We just weren't in the I Billy in, frame of mind. There's been a lot going on in 2020. There are a few things I can recall. <laughs> so, just to recap, since it's been a little while, our friend Billy has a bicycle with a special new departure coaster brake. I got it. Yep. <laughs> it and came he, up. It bubbled up. And it's provided several triumphs in oh, his life. It's provided triumphs in his life. They should have made they should have made a bike called Triumph, did they? Yeah, there was a different bike called oh. Triumph. It's not related to Billy's bike though. Okay. Wasn't there like a Conan O'Brien dog named Triumph the Wonder Dog? Yeah, like Triumph. And the it was insult like disgusting. Yeah. It was disgusting. Yeah. Okay. That's an excellent bike. <laughs> For me to move on. Okay, so in the past, Billy was feeble and sick. Then he got horribly sick, horribly sick, bedridden. Then he got his bike at the suggestion of a physician, and he recovered. He got his life back. Got his life back, and he started to become quite the entrepreneur. And then he met Mr. Banker, a friendly banker, friendly neighborhood banker, who has taken him under his wing and has been tutoring him. In all things entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. In a mentorship role. In a, in a mentorship role. And now we are on to Billy's third triumph, where Billy meets Banker Friend's charming daughter. Then came an eventful Sunday. Billy was taking a leisurely spin out into the country and had just reached the lake, where he meant to pause for a few minutes besides the cool water when he saw two automobiles parked under the trees a short distance away. He noticed that one was Mr. Ingalls' car, and he decided to investigate a little before he left, as automobile thefts were becoming quite numerous in their locality. Approaching, he saw Mr. Ingalls, his wife, a young lady, and a young man removing baskets from the machine and getting ready to enjoy their lunch in the shade. Not wanting to intrude, Billy was turning back when he heard his name called. Hello, Billy, what's your hurry? Well, good afternoon, Mr. Ingalls. I was out for a little spin and I saw your car. I thought it possible that an accident had happened, so I came to see, said Billy. Now, that's not what he thought. He thought that someone had stolen it. Mm-hmm. And he was going to be a hero. But now, he's, he's always changing looking his story. For he's always He's very opportunistic. Yeah. I mean, he just said what he thought. He thought it had been stolen. Mm-hmm. By beatniks and thieves. I don't even think beatniks were real at this point. No, beatniks were real. This is 40 years before beatniks. Okay, but by thieves. Rabble rousers. Were, that, rousers. were they a thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Come here. I want you to meet my family, said the president. And Billy was duly presented to Mrs. Ingalls and Miss Mildred, a charming pink-cheeked daughter of about his own age. He next called to a dapper young chap, several years Billy's senior, who stood in the background. Do you want me to stop while our dog eats something in our house? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's Falky the Wonder Dog. 
so always up to trouble. He's the same age as the daughter, but the... It sounds like there's a dapper young chap. Who's okay. way too old and wildly inappropriate in age difference. Did you read ahead or did I miss the no, context? I'm oh, just he assuming. called to a dapper young chap several years, Billy Senior. I got it. We should pause while we stop the dog from eating something plastic. The senior dog is barfing and the puppy is trying to eat something important. He next called to a dapper young chap several years, Billy Senior, who stood in the background. This is our young friend, Harry Biggers. Billy and Harry, this is Billy Banning, the young man of whom I was speaking only a few moments ago. He's the newsboy who is saving his money and going to be one of our biggest businessmen by and by. Harry, the son of a wealthy lumber merchant, saw nothing commendable in saving money. His highest aim being to coax it from the pockets of his indulgent father. He elevated his nose in ill-conceived scorn, and it was only when he discovered that Mildred was watching him that he extended his flabby hand and without smiling said, Glad to meet you. He then turned haughtingly away and began fussing about his sporty car, while Mildred, with real pleasure, turned to chat with Billy. Father has spoken of you so often, Mr. Banning, that I really feel acquainted with you, she said with a little laugh. I am awfully glad you came, and I hope you'll join us in a little lunch. <laughs> Will you? Billy, who was a little abashed by all this attention, nevertheless accepted the invitation and placing his bicycle against a tree, was soon assisting Mildred in spreading the cloth and arranging the picnic lunch. Harry was visibly peeved at what he regarded as an intrusion. He sulked during the luncheon, but Billy's host did not seem to mind at all. Not even when young Biggers made a lame excuse, jumped in his car, and whirled off without even saying goodbye. Wait, the other suitor, the older suitor who was already more in than Billy right. just jumped in his car and took it. It stopped being easy. Oh. I don't know what to say. I mean, there's a lithograph here. There's another boy here. I'm out. That's what he said. But what I'm pointing to here is there's a lithograph here of Mildred, Billy Banning, Mildred and Billy Banning, and the banker. Oh, that older boy is off in a huff. The mother is just pleased as punch, though. I can see in this... Would you call this a lithograph? Yeah, it looks like it. Oh, Mildred is like just beaming, shaking Billy's hand. They're staring into each other's right, eyes. Right, direct eye contact. They're it's like they're getting married. Similar height. The father is standing over, very pleased with both of them. Beaming. He is counting. He's just counting the days. All right, we shall continue. May I call you Billy? Mildred was saying as they cleared away the remnants of the spread and were repacking the big hampers. And won't you call me Mildred? Mr. and Miss seem so formal for boys and girls our age, don't you think? Especially as you and father are such good friends. Billy agreed enthusiastically, and by the time the lunch was cleared away, they were very good friends indeed. Mildred was a charming girl and had been taught to choose her friends for their worth rather than their wealth or position. The conversation finally turned to Billy's bicycle and the part it had played in his business. It always comes to Billy's bicycle, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. It, it really and always with comes boys back to who it. are into bikes, it is. It always comes back around. Are you 
Are you saying that happens with me? I'm just saying that there's well? not a lot of things you can talk about that you can't bring back to a bicycle. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take a sip of my cocktail. <laughs> Father has told us some of the wonderful things you were doing with that bicycle, said Mildred. Do you really find a lot of fun in riding? Do you know, Billy, sometimes I wish I had a bike. It's nice to ride in a car, but after all, an automobile isn't very chummy. I can't run around in it alone for a quiet little spin. Now we must always keep to the main road. A bicycle, I am sure, would give me just the right kind of exercise. I could ride along paths and the unfrequented roads that lead to some of the real beauty spots you can never visit in a car. I think I'd like to have one, and I mean to ask Father this very day. Well, all I can say, responded Billy, is that I wouldn't be without a bicycle if I had a dozen cars. It was our family physician who had prescribed a wheel for me as being better than all the medicine he could pour down my throat. And everything he said has proved true. Plus the fun I get out of it. It has brought me to chances for earning and saving money and getting a real start in life. I'm a poor boy. My parents are poor. But thanks to my bicycle, when I finish school, I shall have a tidy little sum in the bank to help me start in some business. You see, when you have an automobile, it costs you pretty well for every mile you ride. But with the bicycle, the expense is nothing to speak of, and the money you earn with it is all clear gain. I don't think Billy's really poor if his folks bought him a brand new bicycle in 1919. And they called the doctor over for a headache. That's a house call. I mean, I think Billy. I mean, I think my Billy, parents, when I had a headache, were like, drink a glass of water, eat a pickle. Like, that was I think how Billy's that happened. like, yeah, I'm poor. <laughs> I just don't think he's that poor. Falky, you got your squeak toy? Great. Always during recording. Yes, but don't you get tired riding so long at a time, pedaling away for dear life? No, not at all, although I'm not surprised that you think so. The new departure coaster brake takes care of all that. Ah, there's, there it goes. It's a wonderful invention that robs the trip of fatigue, no matter where you go or how great the distance. I have to pedal only about half the time, and then the ball bearings in the coaster brake hub make the bicycle very easy to run. There's just enough work in riding a bicycle to give me gentle, steady, easy exercise. Exercise? That's the thing, broken Mildred. It's just what I want. Father, come here a minute. Father responded and his pretty daughter began. Father, you and Mother are after me all the time because I do not get more exercise. Now Billy says that his bicycle is wonderful for just that purpose. Now it would be fine if you would get me a bicycle. Billy could teach me to ride, and I'm sure that I would rather get my exercise that way than through the occasional game of golf or tennis out in the hot sun. We'll see, laughed her father indulgently. I'll have to talk it over with your mother, of course. Just then, mother came up, and having heard the latter part of the conversation, she said, Why, Mildred, dear, girls don't ride wheels these days. Oh, yes, they do, said Mildred eagerly. Gertrude Happowate, who is in her junior year at Smith, wrote me only last week that nearly all the girls there ride wheels. They have three clubs and get a lot of fun out cycling. As a matter of fact, she says the faculty encourages a bicycle riding among the girls. Then, too, you know when we were at Palm Beach last winter, all the ladies, young and old, rode wheels. It was quite the rage. 
You see, mother, girls do ride, and I want to ride too. Right then and there, father put in a good word. Mother agreed, and it was settled that Mildred should have a bicycle, fully equipped with the new departure coaster brake. It was not long before Mildred and Billy were together frequently, always with their bikes, enjoying short spins into the country, and both the better for having the invigorating exercise. There's another lithograph. Mildred and Billy enjoying their bicycles out on a country road. And do they look happy? Well, she's wearing a cape, so you don't she's wear a cape. cape. Yeah. And there's five giant crows behind them flying ominously. I think those are crows. They're huge. Look at their... Or turkey vultures. One or the other. Large seagulls. They're, they're big, but they're in the country. They're not the ocean. And then there's Billy, and he's got his knickerbockers. Yeah. Yep. His short pants. He hasn't even graduated to long pants yet, which I bet that other guy... Had long pants on. I mean, Millie's dad owns the bank, so what if her bike is better than Billy's and faster? Billy has a light. He has a light, headlight on his. And she has a step-through. Ooh, a step-through frame. Mm-hmm. Always steering those people towards the... Step-throughs for girls. Mm-hmm. Is she wearing bloomers? No, she has a skirt on. With a, a full step- skirt. A full skirt and a step-through frame. No lights for her. She won't be out past dark. Ever. Alright, well, we finished the third triumph. And the triumph in here seems to be that Billy's made a friend. Oh, I mean, he had friends before. (laughs) Billy's met a girl. That's what the triumph here is? Yeah, I mean, the the older guys seems out of the picture entirely already. Harry, the money grubber? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He, look, he does have long pants. I went to the previous lithograph. Oh. And he had long pants on, indicating his status as a man. Mm. Mm. And Billy is still wearing his knickerbockers. What do you see in the future for Mildred and Billy? Predictions like we haven't read ahead on this at all. No, we haven't. I haven't. I haven't read anything. I mean, I'm a little nervous for Billy. A little nervous for Billy because he's out of his class. He's sitting above his weight. I mean, it's possible. Out of his league. He might be a little out of his league. This is getting a little godfathery. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, let's look at what what is the next triumph called? So the fourth triumph. Billy escapes a mob. A mob. Beats an enemy and saves a bank with his bicycle. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's his fourth like, triumph. That's a fourth triumph, but it seems it's like only page it's a, fifteen. It seems like it's a, a lot of triumphs for a that just should be one. His pen, fourth, fifth, and sixth triumph. Triumph but. is a lot, but it's just one. They are giving no credit for multiple events happening in one day. Mm-hmm. If it happened in the day, it's counted as a single triumph. Single triumph. You get right. one triumph per mm-hmm. day, no matter what. No matter what. So, 1919. Mm-hmm. Are you connecting with this at all? Are you feeling the... <clears throat> well, when will they be strucken down by the Spanish flu and how will the bicycle... Well, that was 1918. So, they're actually... Yeah. In the... Oh, they're re- they're, they're rounding the they're corner. Re-rounding... Oh, they're rounding the quarter. Yeah. Yeah. I should know. 1919. I, you know, I'm hoping that our... 2021 is as good as Billy's 1919. Did you dare say 2021 already? <laughs> I'm That's hoping. Good. I'm hoping that our 2021 
2021. There you go. Is as good as Billy's 1919. Because mm-hmm. Billy had it made. The economy's on the upswing. Yep. There's freedom in bikes. And now he's biking around the countryside with Millie, if we can be so informal. Is this his first girlfriend or is he going to get married to her? I mean, or is it the same thing back then? (laughs) Get married to your first girlfriend. I'm not sure. All right. I don't think they're going steady. I don't think they're going steady. We'll find out next time. I think they're just pals. Are they just pals? They look into each other's eyes like we do. Oh! (laughs) But Millie's on her way to Smith. Yeah, she is. She's on her way to college. She hasn't even started her life yet. Nope. She's just a, she's just a girl. So we should give them time to get long pants and grow up. <laughs> okay. Before they make these decisions. Okay. They could just be lifelong bugs. Okay. All right. That's it. Till next time. For the fourth triumph. The fourth triumph next time. Thank you. You're welcome. You've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. As always, I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can search up the group anywhere or at mobjackmusic.com. You can also check out Keller Glass and see what he's been doing lately. Any of these little dingle dingles in the background is Falky, the wonder quarantine puppy that we got uh, during the quarantine. But yes, all the other music in the show is royalty free. And we'd like to thank those musicians as well. I'd like to thank my guests, John Shepard and my wife, Liz. Thanks again to The Frame and Wheel, AD Bikes, and the show All Things Bike with Fred Thomas. Thanks for having me on your show, Fred. If you have comments, feedback, have a story you'd like to share on the show, or if you have a product or service that you think would be a good fit for the show, well, for all of that, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's one word, bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. No matter how much other stuff you have going on, don't forget to do your ABC quick check whenever you go out for a ride. Quickly check your air, brake, chain line, your quick releases to make sure that your wheels are going to stay onto your bike. And do a quick overall check just to make sure nothing's loose or broken before you go barreling down that hill. The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. And apart from the music, all rights, including copyrights, trademarks for the cool cat logo my kids drew me. Yes, those rights and others are asserted and reserved. We have a lot of cool stuff coming up in the queue, and I am going to try and get back on my pace game so we can get one out every month on time. Stay safe out there. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Until next time, keep it wheel. You on the ground.